2: I'm Keegan and I'm Madigan and you're listening to your, your angry, angry neighborhood, neighborhood feminist. feminist this is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives hello right, Keegan. Right.
3: hello I always feel like when we're recording remotely we always give like a pause after our count in clap in and then we always start talking at the same time
2: Because we both wait for each other, and then when neither of us talks for a second, we both jump in. But what I love is that most of the time when we are recording remotely, the first thing you say is the full-on Matthew McConaughey, all right, all right. All right, all right. Hello,
3: everybody. (laughs) I just become like a shock jock DJ (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) whenever I'm alone in a room recording by myself.
2: You have all those little buttons next to you. It's like boing, 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 boing Like one of those yeah, like, talk exactly. radio shows. <laughs> exactly. I wish. Oh, my gosh. Oh, we would be so annoying if we had that option. Are you kidding me? Like every time we met someone horrible, we'd have like a womp wah, wah. Yeah.
3: No one would listen to us at all. It would be... Um, I wouldn't listen to us, I'm sure. Uh, no, I'd so. be annoyed. I'd be annoyed. <laughs> ah, well... This week we are going to bring you a, another installment of Feminist Faves, and because it is Pride Month, we wanted to bring you some LGBTQ feminist favorites. And I believe that I go first this week,
2: much to your you chagrin. Do. Much to my chagrin. Honestly, like you know how we call this feminist faves and like we cover so many people. Yeah. My person is like my actual new favorite. Oh, okay, that's very like, exciting. I love I it when you get excited love. about
3: a person. Like I feel like I felt that way about Margaret Cho where I was like, "Oh, I didn't realize I actually like you as much as I do." Yeah. <laughs> you know.
2: Oh, it was and I'd never heard of this person. Anyways, but I want to know who you're going to be talking about. Please tell me well, everything.
3: Well, I had never heard of this person. So, what if we were doing the same person that we'd never heard I'm gonna of? I'm
2: going to cry. Um, I worked so hard. <laughs> I worked so
3: hard. <laughs> Well, but you know, if we're just doing the same person, it would just be like a regular episode and we would just combine all of our research exactly into a, exactly. Into a mega episode about one person. But I, I really okay, doubt tell that me. we are.
2: Tell me, so tell me, tell me.
3: I've never heard of this person. I'm very surprised that I haven't. I wonder if it's because she is far more prominent in the UK uh, than in the United States. But I will be talking today about April Ashley. Have you ever heard of April Ashley?
2: No, and I, you know, I really went into a deep dive this time to try to find some people that we hadn't like covered in the periphery or like really well-known people. I like really tried to find some unknown people and that name is not even ringing a bell in the people that I'd written down.
3: I had no clue who this person was, but she is a trans icon in the UK. Ooh. And gorgeous, gorgeous. Her story reminds me a lot. And you'll see all of the parallels. Um, but her story reminds me a lot of Caroline Cosy, who you did. Cossey? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. 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 Um, but I'm so similar. bad with the names. <laughs> but yeah. I do remember. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. And so the stories are very similar. And you will see why. So. Yeah. Ashley was born on April 29th, 1935, to a working class couple living in Liverpool, England, home of Liverpool Beatles. She was one of nine children, um, six of whom survived to adulthood. So three of her siblings did pass away. There's not a lot of information about that. Um,
2: but yeah, that seems, seems like it's pretty late in. I mean, we're in the 19th. 30s unless she was one of the I mean it does seem like a pretty late time to be losing that many children but I guess it's still there right. were a lot of sicknesses in the Great Depression era and things like that one especially if she's third. from a working class family one third of the
3: siblings though you know what I mean like yeah th- three out of nine is like did we look a into the parents amount <laughs> yeah um, as a child she was bullied and she got beat up a lot at school and and she said that she just felt like a stranger in her own body, which is yeah. it's just something that you hear so repeated repeatedly, you know, and she talks a lot in her memoir that she would write later on in her life called The First Lady. She talks about how difficult and isolating it was to have no one to look up to. And no one who could lead her through these feelings that she was having. She and describes what example herself,
2: do you have? Like I can't imagine being a child feeling like I am in the wrong body and literally not having a single person around me be able to empathize with that feeling.
3: Right. I mean, and she describes herself as being very effeminate. That she was like just softer than you know the other boys in her class. She just considered herself to be just like she just didn't fit in and she just felt like she didn't fit in anywhere. Um, And this, of course, led her to be really depressed as she was going through school. So I'm going to give a trigger warning through this entire section. Um, It is a little tough. It deals with suicide and, of course, bullying. So, the bullying continued into her teens, and at the age of 16, she joined the merchant navy. So, I don't know, she just dropped out of school or something, but I was like, she joined the merchant navy at 16, which isn't even something I thought you could do.
2: However, I mean, I after, guess at the time, maybe she's like, anything's got to be better than school. Yeah, but I'm like,
3: I they just let you join at 16. Yeah, They're not like, yeah. hey, you need to finish
2: school first. <laughs> like, I mean, this was what, like the forties. Yeah. Like 50s? The forties. Maybe not. I mean, maybe if they, if they needed you and you're willing and able, they'll take you. I don't know.
3: Yeah. The late forties. So however, after being sexually assaulted and um, some articles <laughs> say that she was raped, but the accounts differ, by a fellow sailor, She Mm -hmm. attempted to end her own life at the age of 16 and was given a dishonorable discharge, which can we just mention really quickly about how fucked up that is that you would give someone... A dishonorable discharge because they were struggling to such a degree that they attempted suicide?
2: Unfortunately, I think that that was something very common in the military and I think is still really common when it comes to sexual abuse in the military, that there is a lot of protection of abusers. There's a lot of victim blaming. It's more about getting the victim out of there than it is about, um, you know, getting whoever did this to pay for their crimes you know they'd rather just cover it up that doesn't surprise me at all but it is so disheartening to think about
3: yeah it also feels very rooted in toxic masculinity that this is something that would be dishonorable for you to be struggling mentally in this way Um, so I don't know but that really struck me as very very messed up that you've got this uh, yeah it's just that was a real bummer to me So at the age of 17, she attempted to take her life for the second time, and this time she was committed to a psychiatric facility where she was, quote unquote, treated with electroshock therapy and forcibly injected with male hormones at this time. Oh, God. Yes. Yes. So she was forced to stay at the hospital for three years before she finally Mm -hmm. managed to flee to London in 1955. Three years. Three years. And I couldn't find a lot about her life in this period of time. I don't think she really talks about it very much. In a lot of quotes that I saw in her later life, she really despite having gone through all of these very difficult traumatic things um, has a very positive kind of outlook on life and that like she really just wanted to like move forward and try to enjoy her life. So I don't think she liked to discuss or really dwell on any of that stuff that happened because I couldn't really figure out.
2: And I'm sure she's done a lot of her own like personal work on that and, You know, not everybody is able to discuss a lot of those things or discuss how they've learned to grow through that and feel better. So the fact that she was able to come out of that in general and to actually flee herself and to not just give in to this institution's way of telling her she needs to be, I think that that is very admirable and and yeah, shows I mean, her, her true, like, you know, I, I'm not saying that people who are suicidal don't also, you know, still have a lot of zest for life, but it, it does still show you how much she was willing to risk to live the life that she, I'm assuming, is one day going to go on to live for herself. She was able to see another end to the suffering.
3: Yeah, I Hopefully. mean, three years is is such a long time, especially in that time period. We all remember being 17, 18, 19, you know. Um, yeah. What a tough way to be coming into your adulthood. So but she managed to get through it. She fled to London in 1955 and then soon after made her way to Paris. And there she started dressing and living as a woman going by the name Tony April She got a job working at the Le Carousel nightclub, which was then famous for its drag acts. She became close with some of the other performers at the club, one of whom was a trans woman named Kiki Moustic, And this was the first time April was really able to put a name and a face to what she felt on the inside. She knew that she was trans as well. And Kiki gave April the number for a doctor in Casablanca, Morocco, who could provide her with gender affirming surgery. Now, I should also say, if you Google Kiki Moostick, she's gorgeous. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, both of these women are like so glamorous and so beautiful. So right? Kiki gives her this number for this doctor in Casablanca and is like, you know, if you can save up enough money, you can go and um, get your gender affirming surgery. So by 1960, she had saved 3,000 pounds and traveled to Casablanca to undergo the surgery on May 12th of that year. Doing so also made her the first known Briton to undergo male to female gender affirming surgery. So this Mm. is somewhat disputed. Um, Some... Articles that I read said that she was the second person, but either way, she was one of the first, either the first or the second documented person to undergo male to female gender affirming surgery. After her procedure, she returned to London and even though her hair fell out, she endured significant pain from the procedure and she was given only a 50/50 chance of survival. So the doctor she oh went to Oh my gosh. Yeah, the doctor she went to while he was this kind of like groundbreaking surgeon, she was only his ninth patient ever for this wow. surgery, for this particular procedure. So right it was so still the risk
2: is still very very high.
3: Yes, very high. I mean, and this is after I think Christine Jorgensen was maybe before this or I was going to
2: mention her earlier, but she was like, I believe like Norwegian or something like that. I believe Christine Jorgensen was maybe. before Yes. Yes.
3: But I mean, while she survived her initial gender affirming surgery, she did die from an infection um, from a uterus transplant later on. So, I mean, these were just things that it was a big question mark. Right. Well, I mean, I would
2: I would say with any surgery, I mean, especially when you're getting a new organ in your body, you know, there is such a high chance for infection or for your body to, you know, not to reject that organ or that new thing in the body. And especially without the medical advancements that we have today, I can see where it would be that much more difficult to heal after a procedure like that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, But even given all of this, I mean, her hair fell out. She was in a lot of pain. She was given a 50-50% chance of survival, which for me would be incredibly nerve-wracking. Despite all of this, she would later say that it was all worth it because becoming a woman made her the happiest she had ever been in her entire life. So even though she was in, like, so much pain, she, you know, obviously would have done it all over again. Because what is,
2: yeah, what is life if she had never tried? You know, that 50-50 chance, you know, that's the glass hat full. In her eyes, you know what I mean? Right. And she now gets she gets to, live to be who she wants to be.
3: Who she is. Right. Exactly. Yeah. After undergoing the procedure, she returned to England and officially became April Ashley. She obtained a passport, a national a national insurance card, and a driver's license, all of which identified her as female. She did try to persuade the person working at the registrar to change her name on her birth certificate, as well as her gender identity on her birth certificate. However, that failed. They refused to change her information on her birth certificate. Hmm. As soon as she was healed, she began to pursue a career in modeling and because, like I said, she's stunning, she was almost immediately successful. Like, I mean, she got this gender-affirming surgery in 1960, and that same year, she began working professionally as a model. She was shot by a number of high-profile fashion photographers, including David Bailey for British Vogue, which made her the first trans model to be featured in Vogue magazine.
2: Wow. I'm looking at Google images, like, photos of her right now, and she gives me, like, Liz Taylor vibes. Yes. Like, very sultry, dark features. So beautiful. Big, big, big eyes. Like, those eyes are just so expressive and gorgeous. Yeah. And, I, I mean, I'm wondering, was she out when she was modeling, or was she seen as strictly a female model, or were these photographers and agencies aware of the fact that they were working with a trans woman? Well,
3: she says that though she was not out publicly, so she wasn't publicly known to be trans at the time, she would say later on in a documentary that everyone she worked with knew Quote, they all knew about my operation. They all knew who I was. None of the photographers gave a damn about my past. They wanted me in their portfolio. So she says, yeah, she says that while the public didn't know, you know, the people she was working with did know. Yeah. Her career continued an upward trajectory when, in 1961, she was given a small role in The Road to Hong Kong, a movie starring Bing Crosby, Bob Hope, and Joan Collins. Big names. Yeah, big, big names. Huge names. Unfortunately, however, her career aspirations were about to come to a screeching halt when a friend, in quotes, of Ashley's outed her to a news publication called Sunday People, So this friend was reportedly paid only five sterling pounds Mm. for the admission. Mm. Why? Why? Why would you do this to someone for five pounds? I don't know. The headline read, the extraordinary case of top model April Ashley. Her secret is out. Oh, no. And so this is what reminded me so much of Carolyn Cossey because, you know, her career was kind of like on this fast track. Like, who knows yeah. how far she would have gone. But pretty much immediately her film credit was dropped and modeling opportunities dried up.
2: Which Quote, is so unfortunate because she was just saying, everybody that I worked with knew. Right? And it's so discouraging that just because now... It's the out public there knows. Mm-hmm. and people are worried about how it's going to make them look. Yep. In turn, it's made her not have a career anymore.
3: Yep. Yep. She said, my career was destroyed. And apart from jobs where you were paid under the table, I never worked again. With oh, others, God. Yeah, yeah. With others, when they found out, my shifts would be changed, my hours reduced, and then they would tell me they didn't need me, but then advertise for someone else. It was heartbreaking mm-hmm. because I would have been a movie star. Yeah, she would have. My yeah. goodness. That's definitely the way that her career was going.
2: Fuck but you, does, you not friend.
3: Yeah, what an asshole. <laughs> you know, like, just... Just why? Worst. It just feels so personal to do that for so little an amount of money. Like, it's not even like, yeah. oh, I was on hard times and I did this absolutely deplorable thing. No, I
2: I don't see what the reasoning could have possibly been other than to just inflict pain on another person.
3: Yeah, yeah. It, it feels deeply personal to me. So, awful. But despite the scandal, she found solace in the underground London swinging 60s, vibe community so she partied with salvador dolly and pablo picasso she was just a figure of the social scene there it feels very now andy warhol is so toxic but it feels very much like factory kind of vibes andy warhol's yeah. factory where it's just like a bunch of kind of like off the wall artists getting the together. misfit
2: artists yeah mm-hmm. misfit toys can all yeah. get together and have a place to understand each other
3: Yes, yeah. And she says that both Dolly and Picasso wanted her to pose for them, but she thought that posing for them would be too scandalous.
2: Oh shut up. <laughs> so she says that she turned
3: she turned them down.
2: Which is just uh, I Imagine mean, that's turning like, down Picasso. Like I mean that's like, I always tell people I turned down doing Taylor Swift's nails. Like, it's just those things that make you feel better about yourself because you turn yeah. down the I best mean, of and something. Who knows,
3: like, maybe she did, but also, like, imagine turning down. Like, I, I'll get naked right now for Picasso to paint me. I could be in the Louvre. Amazing. You know?
2: No kidding. No kidding. <laughs>
3: In nineteen sixty two she married the heir of Lord Ra- Rowellin Rowellin. Okay, I'm not I'm not British. Um <laughs> but he's a lord, right? Okay. He's Arthur a lord. Corbett. We get it. <laughs> but the relationship ended quite quickly after they got married. Still, they stayed legally married for some years, and it wasn't until nineteen sixty-six when she had her lawyers reach out to try and claim financial support from her husband That prompted him to respond the following year by filing a suit to have the marriage legally annulled. So he claimed that the marriage could be annulled because usually marriages have to be annulled pretty quickly. Like if if you get married, like with um, Britney Spears's first husband, because they were married for like seventy-two hours or something, you can like usually annul it very quickly. Yeah, well, (laughs) you can usually annul it for that reason, or if there was like some kind of like dishonesty or trickery or something. But he claimed that the marriage could be annulled rather than a divorce because. April was, in fact, a man and gay marriage was not legal at the time.
2: I kind of had a feeling that's where this was going.
3: Mm-hmm. So her husband had known about her transition at the time of her marriage. Like it wasn't a secret, which right. I feel like, again, is usually when you have something annulled, it's because
2: you've been y- deceived in some yeah, way, Yeah,
3: deceived in some way. And he was. But I mean, the he fact that it was a Ill-
2: but the fact that it was illegal and he's bringing it to their attention is still just as damning. I can see, unrightly so, why at the time he was granted an annulment. But it's upsetting. Well,
3: she argued back. So she argued back, you know, one, she's like, he knew about my transition before we were married. And two, I'm not a man. I'm a woman. Like, she has yeah. gender-affirming surgery. And while it's not on her... um birth certificate it is on her other legal documents but the judge ruled in favor of her husband and made a precedent setting judgment that it was not possible to legally change a person's sex therefore the marriage was invalid so this was a huge case so it was corbett v corbett it was a massive case that set precedent for years to come so the judge ended up saying quote it has been established that the respondent is not and was not a woman at the date of the ceremony of marriage but was at all times a male Horrible.
2: fuck right off
3: right Corbett v. Corbett and their resulting 1970 divorce was a landmark legal case that changed transgender rights in the UK for the worse, creating a legal precedent that allowed the widespread practice of legal discrimination against transgender and intersex people throughout Britain. And as a result of the decision, the unofficial correcting of birth certificates for transgender and intersex people ceased. So mm. it, they basically after that were like, we are not going to update legal documents to um, affirm your sex on legal documents. Like it basically, because of this case, it set back transgender rights in the UK for the next 30 years or so. Awful. Mm-hmm. So she was devastated and humiliated by this, you know. Of course, it's it's a devastating ruling to be so publicly to have your identity be so publicly dismissed in that way. And then also just really humiliating on a number of different levels. But she was, again, not one to let life get her down. And so she opened a restaurant slash nightclub called April and Desmond's in London, which was very successful. It attracted all manner of famous clientele, including Ava Gardner and Ingrid Bergman. But despite this, all of the publicity from the trial attracted a lot of negative backlash. And the stress resulted in her having a heart attack in 1975. And then after that, she was like, I can't do this. I need to get out of London. So she closed the restaurant and she moved to the West Coast in the United States. <laughs> wow. So those years, yeah, she was like, but I, I just can't. She's just like, I can't yeah. do this. She needed to just get away from everybody knowing all of her business, you know?
2: Yeah, I don't blame her.
3: Yeah. So, her years in the United States seemed to be relatively happy. She remarried a man named Jeffrey West, and although the two would later split, they stayed friends for the rest of their lives. Still popular among the famous set, she allegedly had high-profile romances with the like of Omar Sharif and Peter O'Toole. After the Gender Recognition Act was passed in England in 2004, April moved back And in 2005 was granted a new birth certificate recognizing her gender as female for the very first time. (laughs) I can imagine that that homecoming must be so emotional to like finally after all of those years, I mean, like 1975 to 2004, she was in the United States or 2005. And then going back to your hometown basically and being able to finally have your identity affirmed has got to yeah. be so
2: Very powerful. emotional. Mm-hmm.
3: So April became a key figure in the transgender community and a champion of transgender causes. In 2012, she was awarded an OBE, which is the most excellent order of the British Empire, from Prince Charles for her wow. work raising awareness about transgender causes. Yeah, huge, huge deal. She said, quote, I don't know whether life would have been so different if I had been born later. It was incredibly difficult, but one has to keep one's dignity. And I just had to get by as I have. Was I a pioneer? I just got on with my life. There was no point in being bitter. My father always taught me that the only person bitterness hurts is yourself. He said we are here to enhance life. And if you can't enhance it, bugger off.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I like her dad.
3: I like her. She's so like just she's so positive. After, the bugger like, off of so things. reminds me
2: her saying bugger off just really reminds me of the P and Marsha P. Johnson standing for pay no mind. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Uh, she remained in the limelight in later years. At the age of 80, she advised actor Eddie Redmayne on how to approach the role of Lily Elbe in um, The Danish Girl. Which she was, I
2: almost talked about Lily Elbe this week. <laughs> I thought
3: about I thought about talking about her as well this week. Um, but she was even thanked in the film's credits. And, you know, we can get into that movie and all of the rightful criticism that it did receive. You know, yes. Eddie Redmayne has talked about it and said that... Um, he would not have taken that, he would not take that role now. And of course, like, there's all of that stuff. But having an actual transgender woman there to share her experience and um, give her perspective, I think, is vitally important.
2: (laughs) It's vitally important. And I also think it's wonderful that April was involved in a movie-making process like this, especially because she wanted to be a movie star. That's where her life was headed. So the fact that she could still give her knowledge and expertise to creating art in some way, I'm sure meant a lot to her as that was something she really wanted to do with her life.
3: Yeah, absolutely. April continued to be an icon in Britain's trans community until her death, appearing on television programs and receiving awards for the rest of her life and always went out of her way to respond to letters from LGBTQ youth who wrote in seeking her advice. Often she would repeat the following, quote, Be kind to yourself and to others. Be beautiful on the inside and that will show on the outside. But most of all, be brave because you'll need to be. And she also would say, I know more than anyone how people can judge, but I also know if you are true to yourself, that's all that matters. (laughs) She did pass away quietly in her home last December, December of 2021 at the age of 86. And that is the story of April Ashley, who I didn't know anything about. And she... She was here in the United States for so long. And she's such an icon. Like after she passed away, so many people like Boy George, like all of these people were tweeting about her, you know. Wow. Why did
2: we not hear about this? I don't know.
3: I don't know. But I enjoyed learning about her today.
2: Well, thank you for teaching me about her.
3: Yes. Do you want to take a quick break and then we can come back and you can tell me who you got?
2: Well, I guess we should. (laughs)
1: Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free.
2: Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for
3: And we're back.
2: All right. Well, I am so very excited to tell you all about Ruth C ellis and i am emphasizing the c in ruth c ellis because when i googled just ruth ellis a serial killer came up not the same person yeah there was a good to know there was a white blonde female serial killer by the name of ruth ellis this is not the same woman so will i be reading
3: about both of these ruth ellises after this yeah probably
2: Yeah, we're (laughs) we're going to be going down a few rabbit holes, right? Exactly. So Ruth Charlotte Ellis was born July 23rd, 1899 in Springfield, Illinois. Her parents were from Tennessee, and her father in particular was born during the last years of slavery. Charles J. Ellis was born September of 1861, and her mother, Carrie Farrow Ellis, was born May 1865. She was the youngest and only girl. She had three older brothers named Charlie Jr, who was born in 1890, Harry, who was born in 1894, and Wellington, who was born in 1896. Wellington. They were all <laughs> Wellington, right? Isn't that adorable?
3: Well, it reminds were- me of
2: food, which I'm like, <laughs> beef Wellington. Oh, that's you know? a Yeah, that's a great point. I didn't even really think about that. I just th- thought about how British it sounded. <laughs> They were a very musical family. Her father liked to play the tuba. Her brother, Charlie, played the violin. Harry played the piano, the clarinet and guitar. Wellington played the drums. And little Ruthie liked the mandolin as well as the guitar and the piano. So that was something that they did together as a family a lot. Her father became the first black mail carrier in Illinois, and she sadly lost her mother when she was 12 years old when her mother had a stroke. But back to her father's business... um, Because he was the only black mail carrier in his business, it didn't always make for the easiest go for him. He was appointed the job because he was a Republican, the same as the postmaster general and the postmaster general was getting rid of all the Democratic workers. So there was some hostility there because of that as well. But on the first day on the job. His predecessor refused to show him the route. And in a report about this incident, it described, Ellis was not in the least bit disturbed by this refusal and at once started over the route by himself. And it is probably that in two or three days, he will know it better than DeFreitz, the predecessor, did. So it's pretty amazing. It seemed like he was very welcomed by the post-community as a whole, even if he did experience some racism within the job. He remained a mail carrier until about 1905, and in the meantime, his fellow carriers elected him as a trustee of the local branch of the National Association of Letter Carriers in 1901. Now, while I am not telling a story about her father, I felt like it was very important to talk about the kind of person her father was, particularly because she was raised by a father and Three brothers and I think that a lot of who her father was really rubbed off on the person that she would grow up to be she was around during the quote-unquote race riot in Springfield of 1908, which was actually the catalyst for the birth of the NAACP. There were some horrible lynchings going on because there was a black man who had been married to a white woman for 32 years who had been lynched. And that actually really scared Ruth at the time because she lived in an integrated neighborhood and there was someone on her block who was a black man married to a white woman. So to protect wow, she their- lived in an integrated neighborhood in 1908 yes she was wow. and yeah so there was actually an interracial couple on her block which made her really afraid that the mobs would come closer and closer to her home so to protect the family her father stood on the front porch holding a ceremonial sword he owned as a member of something called the knights of Pith- Pathias, Pathias, which is kind of like a humanitarian frat. But he just like stood on the front door with this sword to protect his kids and his home. I feel like sure very, nothing would happen. very bold, <laughs> you very know, bold. to stand on, stand on your lawn
3: with a sword.
2: Yeah, with a bunch of white mobs running around. I mean, luckily, they were unscathed, but it was a very, very scary time for her. She started school in 1905, a few years before this riot began. And again, she went to an integrated school And she said she was incredibly lonely as the white kids played with the white kids and the black kids played with the other black kids. But sometimes Ruth was the only black child in her class, which left her without any without any friends. And she also said that classism played a role in her friendships, too, as the wealthier black children thought they were better than her and didn't want to play with her because she came from a poorer family. As a child, she and her friends and family were also discouraged and straight up turned away from most public activities like going to nice restaurants and movie theaters. If they wanted to go out to eat, they only had, quote, short order places available, which I think she means kind of like fast food places. Right. Or like probably
3: you'd have to pick up. So a lot of restaurants, you know, during segregation, black people would have to pick up from the window and take it home.
2: Yeah, Because exactly. they weren't allowed to
3: come in the front or, you know, sit inside. So maybe that's yeah. part of it as well.
2: Right. At the theater, they were put all the way in the back or what Ruthie called peanut heaven. <laughs> it wasn't the peanut gallery. It was peanut heaven. <laughs> that's <laughs> so, so cute. By the way, I'm going to be quoting Ruth a lot during this. A lot of the direct quotes that I'm getting are going to be from the documentary that she did later in life called Living with Pride. So when I'm quoting her, that's where most of these quotes are coming from. During World War One, all three of her brothers served in the military, and I wanted to mention in particular that her middle brother, Harry, joined the military band, and Harry and Ruth were very, very, very close Um, When Harry got back from the war, he went to medical school and actually became the first black doctor in Champaign, Illinois. Ruth always suspected that her brother was gay, as he had a business associate named Howard, who was always around, but she never thought to ask him. She began attending high school in 1914, where she began to have some friends in school, But more than anything, she had a great fondness for her gym teacher. according to her, her gym teacher was beautiful and gorgeous. She was a Portuguese woman. I saw a photo of her in the documentary. But she was also the only person that acted like they really saw Ruth. You know, Ruth talks about, you know, if they would have to get into circles and hold hands or anything that a lot of the times the white kids would not want to hold her hand. And this gym teacher always stepped in to take her hand and show her that she was just as much a part of the group. And apparently she was also a babe. So what are you going to (laughs) do? I love that. I love that it's the
3: gym teacher.
2: It's so classic, isn't it? Ruth came out when she was 16 years old after reading the book The Well of Loneliness by Radcliffe Hall. So I googled this book today, and it is known to be kind of one of the first, like, lesbian novels. The book was about an English woman from a wealthy family whose, quote, sexual inversion was apparent from an early age. She falls in love with another woman during World War I, but their happiness is marred by social isolation and rejection. For decades, the novel was the best known lesbian novel in Enlightenment and often the first source of information about lesbianism that young people of that era could find. So it was um it, it did kind of become this like cult classic. It wasn't a super popular book because of its topic. Uh <laughs> right. But- I was just
3: wondering, like, where did she even get her hands on this book? Like I doubt it's something that like your school library would have
2: I don't know at that time period, you know? Yeah. I wonder if she was just maybe at a local library or something or heard about this book, but she was reading it and she was like, yeah, that's, that's me. I'm gay. And, uh, she always in the documentary, she said, I didn't come out of any sort of closet or anything. She was like, I never really officially came out to my family or anything like that, but everybody always had a really positive response. She didn't hide it from them. Um, her, father's and bro- her father and brothers never seemed to mind when she brought girls home. Um, quote, except one night I had this girlfriend stay and we made a little too much noise. The only thing my father ever said to me was, Next time you girls make that much noise, I'll put both of you out. You know, it,
3: it sounds like she had such an extraordinary, supportive family. That is yeah. incredible.
2: Yeah, she even says that she thinks her dad was secretly happy about having a lesbian daughter because he didn't have to worry about unplanned pregnancy. <laughs> oh,
3: I mean, listen. <laughs>
2: For real. He's like, I have three boys and this girl. Like, he was so worried about who she was going to become. And he's like, oh, no, I, got, I don't need to worry about any sort of extra babies around here or anything like that. She talks about, you know, her relationships during this time after she discovered who she was, saying that she never went steady with anyone, but would find a girl who liked her and have a one night fling. She graduated from Springfield High School in 1919 when less than 7% of black children graduated from secondary school and only 16% of Americans in general would graduate high school. So she was very, very rare and extraordinary for her devotion to her education. Yeah,
3: I have to believe also that that support that she had at home was probably instrumental in her finishing school.
2: Yeah, I mean, all of her brothers went on to do really amazing things. Her father was such a trailblazer. It really seems like she was raised in a house where any sort of dream or aspiration she had was very much comforted and protected and, and, and supported. Yeah, made sure that she did anything she could to reach that goal. After high school, a neighbor taught her how to use their printing press, and Ruth showed a real interest in it. Ruth met Cecilyne Babe Franklin in the late 1920s at a dance. Of Babe, Ruth said, Cecilyne Babe Franklin was the first girl I ever stayed with and the last. Cecilyne.
3: Wow. What a name that doesn't exist anymore.
2: (laughs) Cecilyne. But she went by Babe. Just Babe.
3: I also love that. Can we please bring back people just going by Babe? I, think it's yeah. amazing.
2: I love it. Any sort of nicknames like that, like I'm always down for a nickname that's so not your name. Like my dad and my family is Corky. He's not Frank. And I always really loved that he was like Uncle Corky. I just thought that like having a nickname like that was like the biggest sign of affection you could possibly have. Yeah, you know?
3: especially babe. I hope she gave herself that nickname. Like I hope she was like, I'm babe now. I love I it. Mean,
2: I have mixed feelings about Babe. I'm not like the hugest Babe fan. I like Babe a lot, but I'm not like her biggest fan. Um, but oh, anyway, you, so, you mean the person, Babe? The person, Babe. No, not oh, the name. Okay. The person. I see, I see. This, okay. this specific Babe. So. At first, they didn't really know if they were going to work out because Babe was 10 years younger than Ruth and Ruth was like, no, 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 like you're way too young for me. We're not going to do this. After they met at the dance, Babe showed up at Ruth's place and Ruth said she almost shut the door in her face because she was like, no, we're not doing this. I said we weren't doing this. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, she made her way into Ruth's heart and they started dating So Ruth moved to Detroit, Michigan in 1937 after her brother told her that she could make more money out there and she began working as a nursemaid for white families in her hometown at the time as well. So back in Illinois, she was making around $3 a week, but when she moved to Detroit and met up with another family she was making $7 a week, which is um, comparable to like about $61 a week versus about $143 a week. So it was a pretty big difference moving to Detroit. Mm -hmm. And um, she didn't really expect the relationship with Babe to continue when she left. She was like, I'm going to leave. You know, if you want to follow me, fine, but this is what I'm going to do with my life. And Babe actually followed her less than a year later in 1938. And they bought a house together in Detroit. It sounds like Babe was incredibly handy as she did a lot of the remodeling around the house herself. She also worked as a cook, so she was a very good chef and always made delicious dinners for them. And it seems like they were definitely a very good pairing at the time. So once they got their home together, it quickly became a refuge for young black and queer kids known to the community as, quote, the gay spot. At the time, black people weren't permitted into gay bars, and most of the gay bars in town were for men. The women would give them a place to stay, give them books, food, or assistance with college tuition. It says they helped at least two people get enough money for college by helping them with their college tuition. It was also a place for their community to get together without fear or stigma and dance, kiss, and party. It was written that, quote, for generations of African-American gays and lesbians in the Midwest, Ruth and Babe's home provided an alternative to the bar scene. Her home was a refuge. Ruth and Babe offered lodging to black gay men newly arrived from the South.
3: Yeah, I cannot imagine how tough that must have been to be black, gay, and living in the Midwest in that time period. Like having this kind of... Safe haven where you didn't have to be in public, where you could just be safe around other people who were like you, who would hold you in that safety, had to be life changing, life altering for a lot of these people.
2: And it was such a rarity because, you know, Ruth talks about how until she was older, she really wasn't around that many white people in general. Uh, She'd only met black lesbians throughout her life. Uh, So it really was this sense of community in so many different intersections. And her house also kind of reminds me of like what Star would become with Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera and this home that they started to have a place for the younger generation to have a place. Of love and support, and also, you know, some food and stability, and maybe some financial help and things like that. Like, it, it kind of seemed like they were these predecessors to what Marcia and Sylvia would do years later in New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah. According to the Legacy Project of Chicago, Ruth was also an advocate for senior citizens and proposed a lesbian version of Big Brothers, Big Sisters for young and senior lesbians. After working for the family in Highland Park for a while, she landed a job in the printing field at Waterfield in Heath. She would work at the printing company for the next 10 years or so, and she says she was always open with her co-workers about the fact that she was in a relationship with Babe and it didn't affect her job. When her beloved brother Harry passed away, he left her a large sum of money and she decided that, you know, I've been working for these people for 10 years. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to start my own printing company. So Babe and Ruth together began Ellis and Franklin Printing Company from their home and she took such pride in this business. You know, in the documentary, she talks about how at the company she worked for, people would always complain about getting their stuff late. And she always said that if I ever had my own company, I would make sure it was done early and on time. Like that was her big thing. Yeah, true
3: businesswoman. I mean, when you're passionate about something, I can totally see how you take so much pride in it. And especially at a time when women let alone black women, were not put in charge of things like this. It must have been like a no. huge a, a huge source of pride for her.
2: Well, and a point to what you just said, this business was the first business owned by a woman in the state of Michigan. Like that's unbelievable to be solely owned by just a woman or in this case two women yeah so the business was kept busy with printing stationery posters other sort of personal properties as well as raffle tickets for churches you heard that right everybody churches though ruth was a proud lesbian she was also a very religious woman who really loved going to church uh and babe was kind of the to church she loved church church is such a
3: huge part of African
2: American culture
3: right <laughs> like it's just such a huge part I'm not surprised actually by that at no all.
2: <laughs> not at all but you know it's funny when she talks about her relationship with babe because babe was like a huge drinker she gambled she liked to go to bars she was more of this like lively rough and tumble kind of person and Ruth describes herself as like liking to go to the opera and concerts and meet people at church and get coffee which honestly is so my speech like I see myself and Ruth a lot when she talks about that um, of their relationship in general Ruth states that she wasn't sure if she was ever really truly in love with Babe but that she was good for her and said that Babe taught her how to take care of herself they were together for about 30 years but babe did have some trouble with commitment um, at first Ruth caught her in bed with another man after losing a lot of money gambling she was hoping to win some of it back that didn't make Ruth too happy and then after that she began bringing a married woman home and when that woman began staying in their house even when babe wasn't there Ruth was like uh uh-uh, uh you're out of here like Yikes. bye yeah. Yeah, that's not <laughs> good I- no, when asked why she didn't leave the relationship, she was like, well, where was I going to go? We both owned this house. You know, we've been friends for so long and loved each other. But, you know, their relationship... Yeah, that's relationship such a question
3: that we have to stop asking people because it's like, right. obviously, when you are in a relationship, a long-term relationship with somebody, it is very complicated for a number of reasons. Like, a lot and of those And they both owned reasons, the house right, and the practical business. reasons. Like, the home, the business, but also, like emotional reasons like you know i I said this on my worst state my other podcast but it's this tweet that i had read that was talking about how like one of the things people don't talk about that's so difficult about ending a relationship is that you have a language with the person that you're with that you lose because you only have it with that person Totally. Right? So even if even if the relationship is bad, like you've developed this way of being and this like language that the two of you have and this world you've created together that you lose. And like that's a grief of its own. So,
2: Yeah. We should just stop asking. (laughs) 100%. We need to stop asking that. But I mean, luckily for Ruth, as soon as she saw that Babe was sleeping around, she said that she started picking up ladies at church. So more power to you, Ruth. At church. At church. Oh, she loved her. Some church-going women. She would I love it. That's hilarious. I love it. She would just kind of like see if they were interested and kind of go from... Oh, she was such a ladies woman. Like, you have to watch. It's on YouTube. Watch the documentary. It's like 58 minutes long. Well, I Googled her and she's
3: adorable.
2: I'm obsessed with her. So, um, in the 1960s, Ruth and Babe were forced out of their home due to gentrification and the two ended their relationship when they left the home, though they remained very close friends until Babe passed away from a heart attack in 1975 when she was on her way to work. Sadly, it was Ruth that was contacted when she passed away and Ruth had to identify the body and take care of the arrangements and things like that. Um, But she really did care for Babe throughout their entire throughout her entire life after she retired ruth began to integrate herself into the lesbian feminist community in detroit in the 60s and was invited to march and speak at events she also became a staple at the michigan women's music festival a feminist music festival that was around from 1975 to 2015 and uh, let me just tell you something about this music festival. When they cover it in the documentary, it is so funny. Because let me tell you, this woman loves breasts. <laughs> I she mean, loves who among us? Who among us? Right. She loved breasts naked women she loved like fuller figured women she wanted something to snuggle up to and who doesn't love snuggle in a boob we've all done it um she would sit in like the over 40 section of this festival all day long while young lesbians came to her to hear her stories to feel connected with her um and especially with this history that they felt had been lost through time because lesbians weren't discussed when they were growing up and here was this i mean by the time this the 60s rolled around, she's in her 70s almost, and there's this older foremother for them to look to and to learn from and they really took it upon themselves to feel like they would take care of Ruth um, they would drive her around to different events and parties and kind of just take her wherever she needed to go made sure she was fed especially at the festival someone would always there'd always be some young girl coming to bring her breakfast apparently and that would kind of stay with her at night and things like that like everybody just really protected Ruth and saw how important she was to their lives and to the lesbian feminist movement as a whole. Kind of going backwards a little bit, I forgot to put it earlier in my notes, but she attended the Walk to Freedom on June twenty third, 1963 in Detroit, where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave an early draft to his dream speech. And she said that that was very much a monumental day in her life. Where is she living at this point? What? She was in Detroit. Yeah, in- she moved to Detroit when she okay. was young and stayed for the rest of her life. Also, now that she was retired, she decided to devote her time to causes and hobbies that she cared about. She really enjoyed bowling and was part of a bowling league, although she did deal with some racism back in the day with her bowling league. She told a story about how she and a uh, black man had both won the top prize. And usually when there would be some big party afterwards celebrating the winner, they didn't get their party. But she was happy just to have her trophy and to say that she won and she was the best. She also discovered a knack for photography. Her self-portraits are unbelievably beautiful. She loved to travel, and she always had a full dance card. She also got around by relying on the younger lesbians, like I mentioned, including, and in particular, someone by the name of Jay Spiro, who became one of her close friends. Uh, Ruth says this was the first white lesbian she'd ever noticed and befriended. Um, and they became like besties. Jay taught self-defense and taught Ruth in her 80s how to defend herself. I love it. Uh, Oh,
3: my gosh, that's amazing. It's really badass. I really want more people like this in my life. I want to hear more stories like this of people who remain just, like, totally badass and willing to learn new things as they get older, because that's
2: what I want for
3: myself. I want to be, like, an 80-year-old that's, like... Yeah, I want to learn self-defense.
2: <laughs> That's amazing. You literally, I mean what you just said is is exactly what Ruth's entire life was. She really never she never felt like she was en- like enough in the way that she knew everything. She always knew that she had more more to learn, more to do and she was never really satisfied with just oh, I'm old and I'm just going to sit because I've done everything with my life. Like she saw how the younger generation could benefit her life and how she could benefit theirs as well. When asked in the documentary about what her greatest accomplishment was, she responded, joining the lesbians. (laughs) I love it. Joining them. I love that it's like the army or
3: something. (laughs) She's like, joining the lesbians, the best thing I I ever did. I joined the
2: lesbians. (laughs) She was also very outspoken in the senior citizen uh, home that she lived in, and if she ever heard anyone speak badly about the gay or lesbian community, she was quick to fight back, saying, hey, when you're talking about them, you're talking about me, and that would shut them down. It wasn't until the late 80s that Ruth began to receive recognition for her activism and entrepreneurial skills. She began receiving Lifetime Achievement Awards, resolutions from the mayor of Detroit, and even received an honorary doctorate. She got that honorary doctorate degree in 1997, and on the day that she received it, also became known as Ruth Ellis Day in Michigan. In her old age, she also began to learn how to use computers and the internet, as she knew that this would be the way of connection for her community in the future. Again, she was like, I know I'm an old lady, but this is what's coming, and I gotta be on top of it if I want to remain a part of this family and community that I've created. Her fame really hit new heights as she reached her 100th birthday, She was sung Happy Birthday by the San Francisco Dyke March in 1999.
3: Oh, my God. That is the cutest thing I've ever heard in my life.
2: (laughs) I love it. Oh, my God. It's so cute. It's amazing. Around this time, virtually every LGBTQ publication in the U.S. wrote about her life and especially the documentary that came out that I've been referencing this whole time, Living with Pride, Ruth Ellis at 100. The film won many awards at major film festivals, and the exposure from the film brought Ruth to take interviews from magazines such as Miss and Essence. She was even offered a spot on the Oprah show, but she turned it down because with her age, she was just too tired and couldn't keep up with her newfound fame and popularity. She's a (laughs)
3: hundred.
2: She's a hundred, yeah. I mean, I think it's
3: kind of amazing she was able to do as much as she was.
2: Yeah, Yeah, she was so bewildered by it that she always would say that she didn't know what everyone was making such a fuss over her about. She was like, what's the big deal, you know?
3: Yeah, because she's just lived her life the way she's lived her life, all her life, and, you know, she had family that supported her. It sounds like she had a church family that supported her. So to Uh her, I don't think she necessarily felt like she did anything extraordinary, but there is something really extraordinary about just living Your life true to who you are.
0: Yeah.
2: That's extraordinary. And people see that. They know it. So. Also, when she was 100 years old in 1999, the Ruth Ellis Center was created by Detroit community activists. And I'm kind of amazed that I've never heard of the Ruth Ellis Center because to this day, they do some really, really amazing things for the LGBTQ community. 101-year-old Ruth joined the grand opening for the center's first phase, which was a drop-in center for at-risk youth. At the opening, she said, It amazes me to think that little old Ruth Ellis has come this far. I don't know how it happened. It's been a miracle to me to see my name on a building, the Ruth Ellis Center, that's taking care of young people. I hope you have plenty of success, and I hope you get grants that will help you go further and further. The center actually has three programs, um, or had three programs, I should say. They have many, many more. I highly recommend going to their website and looking at the different homes they have available to different you know, people that are juveniles and need help. Um, there's housing, there's psychological assessments and intakes of each resident, there's teaching of life skills, counseling, job prep, educational advancement, mental health care, physical health care, and after camp. Aftercare planning, follow-ups. I mean, this is like every LGBTQ youth's resource hub for what they could possibly need to set them up to set them up for success in the future. That's amazing. And it was everything that Ruth really had started just from her own house at the gay spot years and years ago. So it's it's really amazing to see that this idea that she had has been turned into this major organization and a physical place for people to go and receive the help and the support that they need in the time that they need it. Yeah, that's incredible. in the final moments of the documentary Living Pride. Ruth says, I think you can change any time you get ready. I don't care how old you are. You can always change. And I had to keep that in, especially because of what you said earlier with the fact that she She never stopped learning and growing and becoming more and more of the person she was throughout her entire life, and she lived until October 5th, 2000, passing away at home just weeks after the grand opening of the Ruth Ellis Center. The following year, her ashes were spread at the Michigan Women's Music Festival, one of her favorite places. Since then, in 2019, the executive director of the Ruth Ellis Center, Jerry Peterson, announced that a new housing unit will be built, quote, preferencing the lived experiences of trans women of color. The Ruth Ellis Center remains a major source for the LGBTQ community in Michigan and a resource all over the world. To finish us up, the Legacy Project says this about Ruth. Ellis became a fierce advocate for African Americans, senior citizens, and the gay and lesbian communities. She offered assistance to lesbians of color, researching their history and their roots. And I think the biggest, and this isn't part of the quote, but for me, I think one of the biggest impacts that Ruth had on her community was the fact that she was able to live so long and see so much and be such a living example of history for everybody that she came into contact with and really was such a light, I think, for so many people You know, from the early 1900s to the year 2000, when she passed away, showing an example that you can be out and proud and live a full life and be loved and accepted, especially in a time when a lot of lesbian women didn't feel that way. You know, she very much gave them an example and a voice.
3: Yeah, I mean, I feel like both of these women that we've talked about today, this is why it's so important for people to be out like this is why it's so important and of course like there are so many reasons why people don't feel safe or comfortable coming out and all of those reasons are valid and i'm not trying to invalidate any of those things but there is something very powerful and i think both of the women that we've talked about today really illustrate that that there is something really really powerful in living your life in public and being who you are because other people will see that and be inspired by that to move forward with their own lives um, and feel comfortable living in their own skin, whatever that may be, you know? And I think that that is something that's really, really, really beautiful.
2: Yeah, and I mean, she lived through so much. In the documentary, they said that she experienced, you know, like three major riots throughout her life, so many different civil rights movements. I mean, to think about what someone would go through being alive between 1899 and the year 2000 is pretty unbelievable. And especially being a lesbian black woman who came from a, you know, single parent household from not a wealthy background, you know, to, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that makes me feel like anybody can really make a difference. You don't have to be someone of high stature or whatever to make a difference in the world. And I love you, Ruth C. Ellis. Yeah, I. me too. <laughs> <laughs> I already sent you the Wikipedia page to the other Ruth Ellis when you're interested. Oh, I can't wait. I'm going to do more reading on both Ruth Ellis's. I highly recommend everybody watching that documentary on YouTube. Like I said, it's, like, 58 minutes long. It was made in, like, 99, so it's, like, peak 90s documentary style and things like that. Amazing, but
3: yes. You mean
2: so many people. She talks through the whole thing. The photos that are shown, oh, my gosh. It's it's amazing. I highly recommend if you have an extra hour to spare and you enjoyed what I had to tell you about her, please watch that documentary. She is the most precious human being to ever live. <laughs>
3: Love it. Thank you so much for sharing about her life. I had no idea who she was. We truly did some forgotten for us feminist favorites this week, I feel like.
2: Definitely. I mean, I especially because I think it took a little bit for both of us to find some people that were a little bit more hidden. I'm super curious if any of you have ever heard of April Ashley or if you've heard of Ruth Ellis. If we're just kind of telling you things that you already know, if this is new to you. Yeah, I also please. want to hear Are UK
3: listeners, please please let me know if this is something that you're like, yeah, of course, April Ashley. Duh. Have you never heard of her before? Like please, like cuz I, I, I once I read about her, I was like, how did I not know? How did I yeah. not know? Like yeah. you know that that court case shaped transgender um politics in the UK for years and I didn't know?
2: Didn't know? I know. And and with that also, if there are some other forgotten feminists, particularly, you know, right now we're talking about the LGBTQ community, please send them our way. It really is sad <laughs> that it's so difficult to find so many stories like this. Like, I really had to dig to find the ones that we don't hear about Mm -hmm. all the time. It's kind of the same 20 people on every website, you know? uh, Yeah,
3: I opened opened quite a few articles this time, and those lists are very repetitive. And it's not to say that those stories shouldn't be told, but you know, I want to share stories that I've not heard about before,
2: you know? Exactly. Sometimes it's fun to tell the ones that are really well-known, but... This week in particular, I felt very happy to find like a true new feminist favorite of mine. Like, I am such a huge fan. And that's like the whole point of this is finding people that we didn't know about that make an impact on our lives. So totally, what an episode. I thoroughly enjoyed this one. Me too. All right. Like I said a little bit ago, if there's any suggestions that you have for us in the future, please email us those topic suggestions at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. Or direct message us in our Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. If you want to support some Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist merch, you can also go to the link in our bio on our Instagram or the link in the show notes wherever you're listening to this episode right now. We also have a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page. Last but certainly not least, if you haven't done so already, the best way you can show us some love is by hopping on over to that Apple Podcast app and leaving us a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. That little sentence truly does help us so much and we really appreciate it. All right, that's all we have for you today. With all that being said, we encourage you to to rage on. on. Bye, and happy Pride.
1: You've probably heard the name Mary Queen of Scots, and maybe you know the importance of her legacy to the British monarchy. But how much do you know about her life and what she was really like? For instance, did you know that she preferred to have her eggs scrambled, or that giving gifts was her love language? In my podcast, Vulgar History, we'll be talking about all that and more during an eight-part mini-series about the fascinating life of Mary, Queen of Scots. Vulgar History is a feminist women's history comedy podcast where we don't shy away from the messy, complicated lives of women from the olden times. Particularly with women in history, it's easier to use broad strokes to portray who they were, and it's like we forget they probably also had messy lives, complicated relationships, and maybe things weren't as black and white as they might seem in a textbook. But...